Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the new podcast we are calling the AI Insiders. The subtitle of that is An Anthropologist's Journey to Meet the Humans Behind AI. Spoiler alert, I am that anthropologist. Uh, my name is Adam Russell, and I promise I'm a human. Why would I start out that way? I mean, why do I even have to tell you that? Well, because this is where we are. We're in a world where something called artificial intelligence, a term that's as inclusive as it is contested, is becoming both commonplace and increasingly confusing. For better or worse, AI now touches just about everything we interact with on a regular basis. And it's got some people really excited about what AI means for our future, just as it's got others who are a little freaked out about what AI could mean for us not having a future. And then there are folks who don't know how to feel, and it's got some people like me somewhere in the middle in a space that I call apocaloptimism. This could be the most amazing thing that happens to us if it doesn't all go wrong. But behind all this AI, ultimately, are humans. They're humans who come up with these ideas, who are trying these things out, who interact and engage with machines and each other. They're humans who are determined to do things right, as well as to do the right things. Humans who are just as worried and just as optimistic as everyone else about AI. And humans, like some of our guests we'll have on this podcast, I think, who are working in this space because it's some combination of awesome and interesting and fast-paced and emerging, clearly powerful, and because it does represent one of the biggest historical technical inflection points for our species. And these are humans. I think they want to do what they can to help things turn out right. Now, I have the privilege of being the uh, recently appointed and newest director of the AI division at the University of Southern California's Information Sciences Institute. As part of this job, I want to get to know more about these humans behind AI. That is, I want to help open the black box that is AI right now by interviewing the humans who have journeyed to and, and with AI to this point. In part, I want to do this because I think they're just as interesting as any story about transformers, deep learning, or generative adversarial networks, apologies if you don't know what that is, or NVIDIA's latest chip, but in part because I think understanding them could also help us better understand where AI, so all of us, may be headed. So I invite you to join me as I talk to and learn more about these humans who are helping to usher us into this new age. The humans, I hope, who help create and deploy the AI that we're going to need to help us not just survive AI, but thrive with it. My guest today uh, is Dr. Keith Berghart. And now this is usually the part of the intro where I read Keith's resume or point to publicly available information. And one should ask the question, what is the point of that? Because it is publicly available. So rather than do that, I got a hold of Keith's resume and with his permission, gave it to a large language model. And I asked it to summarize based on the resume, what are the most human things to know about Keith? And the answers I think are revealing more about AI at this point than about Keith, which is why I'm going to ask Keith my own questions. It came back with, Keith seems to be an accomplished yet well-rounded researcher who combines technical expertise with humanistic interests to make contributions in data science and AI. His resume paints a picture of someone passionate about research and teaching. So you can see why I'm not going to quit there. And I want to ask you some questions. First question, Keith Burkhart. I have a magic wand and we're going back in time. And Keith, I want to introduce you to your six-year-old self. And now I'm going to stand back and I want to watch you explain to your six-year-old self what the heck you're doing. How are you? How are, what are you doing with AI? How'd you get here? Thank you, Adam. I would say I learn why people hate and how to stop it. Hmm. 
I look at the signals people leave online, the digital signals, the fingerprints that they leave online to understand what makes them more likely to join, uh, let's say, online hate groups, the impact of joining these groups, and how to finally make them leave. Interesting. Okay, so you would tell your six-year-old self, I, I'm going to tackle hate. Yes. All right. I'm sure at that point, the six-year-old says, well, why would why would there be so much more hate in the world? Don't worry, kid. Wait till the social media comes along. Okay. So let me ask you this then. Who are your heroes in this space? Well, tell me tell me who your heroes are generally, because my yeah. suspicion is, is that they somehow inform some of your decisions to be in this space. Who are my biggest heroes? I would say, actually, my dad, as generic as that may sound, where he always actually fed my curiosity, including my curiosity in this work. He was an English teacher, but in his own time, he learned German and Old English in order to do stuff like read Beowulf in its original language. He didn't do that to be pretentious. He did that because he was interested in history. My main focus on why people hate was actually influenced by him. He was a diversity coordinator where we would hear about diversity, equity, inclusion with students in high schools he would come back after each day of work, you know, sort of explain to me the issues that uh, many of these people would face. That's that's really interesting. Um, so I can tie that thread there. Given the rapid acceleration of technologies in this space, what should we be taking from history to guide us as, as we get through this, this period? I think one aspect of that is that we have all this data from history that we use to train our models. And one thing that history teaches you is that people are never static. And so we could use, for example, our understanding of how people have evolved, their language has evolved, to uh, address some of the, say, historical biases that might otherwise be ingrained in the AI. So question that falls on from that would be, given the rapid acceleration of this technology, where do you think you will be in five years? And how do you think AI will make your prediction completely inaccurate? I would imagine there's a lot more research that I want to do in this subject, understanding what are the mental models that affect people's likelihood of joining hate groups. The other sort of research that I do to a lesser degree is understanding uh, how settlements evolve. In that case, there's been a lot of work and very rich work on what is called vectorizing maps, turning historical paper maps to actual digital data that a computer can analyze. And I would say that there's so much to do to understand hate groups, so much to do to understand settlements and, and even digitizing maps, that that's what I think I would do in five years. But you also bring up the point, how could AI affect these, these assumptions? Well, AI could be extremely important in progressing this research because uh, we have this these huge potential advancements in what is called computer vision and how computers can see an image. And I would suspect that in a few years, this decades-old problem of how to actually have a computer understand a map could in fact be a solved issue. So I think that's one component where AI can make an advancement. And the other component would be how AI could better help me understand, for example, 
the actual thinking process, what people think when they join these hate groups. And right now we have some sort of rudimentary ways of understanding uh, people's thought process, people's mental model. But with these advances in large language models, we might have a much better understanding of really what is in these people's minds. And to that end, we could think about better interventions, better ways of addressing the many issues that come with people joining these hate groups. You touched on the ability to better understand what's in people's minds. There is a lot of discussion about the obvious, obviously dual use nature of, of technology generally, but certainly artificial intelligence, uh, ranging from you know existential risk uh, in which we sort of you know, are exterminated somehow uh, using mechanics that aren't entirely clear to me. Where have you been most wrong about sort of AI slash data science? Like what's the most counterintuitive concept or thing you've run into where you thought, ah, I just I was just totally wrong about that? Uh, great question. And this actually is not related to the research I do in hate, uh, but more relates to the unexpected impacts that AI tools can have. Uh, the first and perhaps most obvious would be GPT-3, GPT-4, chat GPT and the like where suddenly we have huge models, which we never saw coming. Going back to my dad, he's a high school teacher, and suddenly every kid is using uh, ChatGPT to write their papers. And what that means, of course, is not, okay, they get an easy grade. It means they're not learning how to write. So, but that seems to be a, a common challenge and one that I have, you know, six and a three-year-old. Pushing that forward, do you think... AI will ever be the best teacher we can have, that AI will ever be almost like a best friend? I would say it would be more like, I think of it as looking at a dog on the street, uh, something to respect, okay. something to better understand, but not necessarily something to treat as a friend. Uh, it actually reminds me of, a, of something that happened just a few days ago when I was walking my dogs. We, uh, My dogs and I were walking down uh, a boulevard and behind us was a coyote, not because it's being friendly, but because it's shadowing my dog. It looks like to my dog as a piece of food. That gets into the, the analogy I'm making, mm. that I can respect this coyote, not fear it. I know the coyote would never hurt my dog because I can yell and it'll go away. It is something to understand. So with mm. AI, it has a lot of potential. We have to be careful with, I would say, how much trust we give it. You're mentioning your kid could interact with, let's say, a large language model. Well, we don't know how what the large language model is trained on. There are a lot of components of the large language model that we don't know. The other thing is she's growing up thinking that all of artificial intelligence is essentially large language models. And I have to go back in time, talk to your six-year-old self and explain like there's more to it than that. Let me, let me put you on the spot, though, with a little bit of a lightning round. I'm going to ask you unfair questions uh, and force you to go one with the other and explain to me why. So the first is, uh, would you rather have AI replace all umpires or referees in sport or all the judges in the legal system? Have it replace all umpires. I think AI could be good for low stakes issues. You know, if it is wrong, you get a complaint by, uh, let's say, fans of the game and that's that. Um, okay. Would you rather see AI surpass humans in creativity or empathy? 
I would say it would be good to have AI surpass humans in empathy. That's interesting. Why is that? Well, it comes back to an interesting book that I mentioned to you before, which was Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. And among the other points that Philip K. Dick makes is that the big division between the robots and the humans are the ability to have empathy. Uh, it's easy for, in some sense, AI to have some creativity. We see this in AI creating images, art, mm. but the ability to create empathy, I think, would be important and perhaps the deepest challenge. Interesting. So, yeah, you mentioned, obviously, the book that was the, the basis for the film Blade Runner. Yes. In the movie that's called The Void Conf Test, right? Which is that it can discern whether or not you're you know, a robot or human. I, I told you at the beginning of this that I'm a human. How would you go about proving that if you had to? I would say I'm an engineer for uh, OpenAI. You know, please tell me whether or not you're a human. Uh, getting back to empathy, you know, certainly AI can sort of simulate empathy, can simulate emotion, but all it is meant to do is simulate. And once you get far past what it's meant to do, that's when it breaks down. If I do something unexpected, and see your reaction, or if I try to get around any guardrails that I think you have, that would be the best way, in my opinion, to figure out whether or not you're a human. Okay. A young person comes to you, Keith Burkhart, and says, I'm interested in AI. I want two responses from you. The first is, okay, great. Here's what you need to do. Here, or Here's my advice to you. The second, I want you to talk them out of going into AI and tell them what they should do instead. So the first part, what should they do? I would say if they want to work in AI, I think the most critical work they would have to do would be work in making AI more fair. The deepest issue, I think, is AI can drive people to into echo chambers, can create all this harm. People don't give yeah. the issues in AI enough focus. Okay, gotcha. Uh, now talk me out of going to AI. Tell me what else I, I should do instead. Well, for one thing, there had been very recently a downturn in the market. So if you want a stable job, it's very dependent <laughs> on how industry fluctuates. So if you want something more consistent, I haven't gotten a PhD in physics would say do work in, in physics uh, or uh, as many physicists have done and maybe some AI engineers have done, uh, sell your soul and do high frequency trading because you're going to get a lot more money that way. Yeah. All it costs is one soul. That's right. All right. Well, a couple other questions for you then. So what do you think is the most misunderstood concept in artificial intelligence? I would say the most misunderstood concept is you often see people try to sell AI snake oil saying that, give me a video of, for example, someone's interview, and I'll tell you if the interviewee is right for the job or not. Or you give me a text, I'll tell you if the text is from GPT or was from a human. Often people think that these models work really well. But if you deviate too far from the data it was trained on, the model very quickly becomes inaccurate. I could feed in the Constitution of the United States into these, and it will say with pretty high confidence that that Constitution is written by AI. Although in, in its defense, strictly speaking, depending on how you view our, our brains, they were written by neural nets, right? There were, there were some neurons firing when, when they put those together. Okay, fair. I'm not going to defend the large language model there. Um, since LLMs were unhelpful with your resume and better understanding you as a human being, uh, if I were to shadow you for a day, 
what would I see uh, about you that isn't indicated in your resume other than your penchant for apparently attracting coyotes? <laughs> well, uh, during lunch, I often like listening to science fiction novels. You know, of course, most of my work is <laughs> meetings. You, code, do you write whatever. science fiction? No, no, no. I, my Why dad, that? well, I think I'm an okay writer of journal papers, uh, but I, I could never have the talent of writing fiction. And I say that with some sincerity. My dad, he, in addition to being an English teacher, he actually wrote, writes fiction. When I see my dad write, I see that there is a talent to uh, writing fiction that I yeah. could never have. It's much easier to just put the facts on the paper, like in a journal, a journal article. But let me ask you then, what's something you would like to be better at? I would love to have more time to invest in things like learning about history. Uh, I would love to know, uh, say, history a lot better. If you could go back to any historical epic, which epic would you choose and why? I would say, uh, and it's funny because in the front door of my office, I have a little uh, cartoon that says, it was a joke about linear A versus linear B script. What I would love to do is, you know, live around 1200 BC in Greece, where there's this huge mysterious thing called the Bronze Age collapse. The Greek civilization called Mycenaean civilization fell, mm -hmm. the Hittite culture fell, mm -hmm. uh, Egypt was weakened. Uh, and I would be very curious to figure out what exactly happened. Uh, there's these discussions of sea peoples, but most likely those were just raiders because the whole civilization fell apart, maybe because of the environment. I mean, there's a lot of mysteries that mm -hmm. I'd love to know better. That's interesting. That that convergence of of things that we either can't fully appreciate, but may not even be able to see coming. Um, are there any questions you have for me? And as a reminder to the, the listeners, I, I have become the division director of the AI uh, division here at ISI. Well, you know, one question I would definitely have for you is you made a big jump going from DARPA-H to ISI. And I'm wondering what what made the change for you? What drove you to uh, come to ISI? Very, very briefly, uh, ISI has an unbelievable pedigree. I'm um, in a storied history of, of doing work in the information sciences, not just AI. Uh, given the privilege I had of, of being part of the stand-up of, of ARPA-H, you begin to think really, really broadly about the country, democracy, You know, helping to promote and sustain this really rather weird experiment that our species is conducting, to your point, right? Uh, and to see democracy work requires that we deliver on that. And that was true of health. It's true of national security at DARPA. It's true of decision-making at, at places like ARPA. And I think it's particularly true in this area of, of artificial intelligence. And so I've come to do what I can to help uh, really kind of you know see the information sciences serve uh, to the benefit of, of democracy, not to put too, too fine of an ambition on this. Also, you guys are just cool, especially since you're willing to do something like sit down on a podcast like this, where I ask you crazy questions about, um, would you rather have AI, you know, automate all cooking or all fashion trends of the future? Go. Uh, oh, geez. Uh, definitely all cooking. Uh, it'd be an interesting experiment, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I'd also have to say you saying cool people as though I'm part of the group. Well, you know, I'm the intersection of me and cool people is is two different circles. <laughs> I think we have different definitions of cool uh, because I think cool are, are people who are doing things to do things like, you know, reduce hate. I don't know what's cooler than that, to be honest, Keith. So rock on, man.
I think that's that's pretty much all I've got for this podcast. This is really, I think, important to to humanize AI in this way. Um, because whatever else we learn from AI, to your point, we're learning a lot about ourselves in this. I want to thank you again for this uh, opportunity to talk. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Well, with that, uh, thank you for the first uh, episode of the AI Insiders. The anthropologist, myself, will continue uh, to try to understand the humans behind the AI. Of course, that's a tall order since I've been trying to understand humans. Uh, thanks again for your time, Keith. And I look forward to future podcasts. Please join us again when we have another episode of the AI Insiders up. And of course, all feedback is welcome from, uh, from the listeners. You uh, have a good day. 